0: My name's Kathy Schaeff, and I have this privilege this morning. We are reading John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Is that right? Yes. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Kathy, and good morning, everyone. Once again, like Eileen said, great job getting out. Please don't fall on the ice. And for those of you who are joining us at home, welcome. We're glad you're safe. I want to encourage you to pray for DJ Kerr this morning, who's driving still, is he? (laughs) Okay, Driving to Prairie City uh, with his son, Bo, and he's preaching out there this week. He was supposed to preach last week, but they called it off due to weather, and um, so he agreed to go out and preach this week in Prairie City. They should be having a new pastor come uh, within the month. We want to continue to pray for them and lift DJ and Bo up, especially as they're on the road there and back, and as he brings the word to them. So I'm just going to ask you to pray with me once again as we get into this uh, into our passage today, which is actually in Philippians. So we're going to turn there in a minute. Our Father, we do um, we are grateful that you have given us your word, that you have brought us here today to hear your word, for you would like to speak with us, and we, um, we know that, we recognize that, we recognize that you are a father who speaks to his children, who talks to us, and who's given us your word, so would your spirit open our ears and open our eyes to see you, to hear from you. And to know how you want us to live, Lord, and we desperately need you. We need your spirit to help us understand your word, and we desperately need your spirit to help us live out your word, because we cannot do it on our own. We do lift up BJ and Bo as they travel this morning to and from Prairie City. We pray for that little church out there, God, that you would provide exactly what they need, and this um, this new pastor and his family. We pray for Uh, the Hardesty family, as they make their way out from the Midwest to be part of this little fellowship out here in Eastern Oregon, and we're grateful for that chance to partner with them in your kingdom work. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Um, So we are going to be in the book of Philippians, but I wanted to read that story, one of my favorite stories from the book of John, which pictures Jesus as with his disciples, right? He's their teacher, their master, their Lord, and in this in this um, picture, in this time at the Last Supper, they, he, he takes off his outer robe and he basically puts on the garments of a slave, right? And he does the thing that the lowest servant of a household would do. And you can imagine his disciples in that moment looking at him and going like, hold on, this, this is something that one of us should have done and maybe, you know, there would cast lots to figure out who is the loser that had to wash everybody's feet, or at least it should have been somebody, something that they hired out to do, right? We should have hired in a slave or a servant to come and do this, but no, their Lord and teacher, their master is doing this to them because he, his heart of hearts, is a servant. And we're going to look at the book of Philippians today, especially in chapter two, because we see again this picture of Jesus as a servant. But First, we're going to back up a little bit to get our context right. So if you turn with me to Philippians, we'll see here at the very beginning of this letter, this is one of Paul's many letters. It's one of the letters that he wrote from prison, probably in Rome. And most of Paul's letters... Like Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, um, others, Galatians. He, he begins his letters by introducing himself and maybe one of the people he's with, like Paul and Timothy or Paul and Silas or just Paul. And he generally introduces himself as an apostle. Right? An apostle was a sent one, one who had been commissioned by Jesus and given authority to teach and be a leader in the church. And so when Paul introduces himself as an apostle in most of his letters, basically basically he's saying, look, I have authority. Jesus has given me authority to to write the things I'm writing, to say the things I'm going to say, so listen to me because I speak for the Lord. This is one of the few letters, though, where Paul does not introduce himself as an apostle. Here's what he says in chapter 1, verse 1 of Philippians. Paul and Timothy, what does he say? Servants of Christ Jesus. That word servant there, in your your Bible, it might actually say the word slave. It's the same word. can be used as servant, bondservant, slave. And it gives this idea that uh, these men, Paul and Timothy, they see their identity, their very core identity as servants of Christ Jesus, slaves to Christ Jesus. Jesus owns them. They see themselves as having been bought and ransomed and purchased by Jesus. He is their owner, and therefore, they are at his disposal. Their lives are at his beck and call. They do what their master says. And Paul and Timothy are trying to, to communicate a highly significant piece of their identity. And really, it's a, it's a highly significant piece of our identity as well as the people of God. If you've been walking with us during the month of January, we're looking at what it means to be the church And in particular, what our identity is. So a couple weeks ago, our identity is family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are family. Last week, it was that we are disciples. So we're a family of disciples. We're learners. We're followers of Jesus. We imitate him and follow him wherever he leads us. This week, we're looking at the identity of servants an identity that's anchored in humility, an identity that follows the example of service that Jesus himself gives us, like Kathy just read for us in John 13, verse 14, where he says, "'If I then, your Lord and teacher, "'have washed your feet, "'if I've taken off my garments, "'if I've dressed up as a slave "'and gotten down on my hands and knees "'and washed your filthy feet, "'then you also ought to wash one another's feet. "'If I become your servant,' then you ought to become the servant of of each other. And he's arguing from from the greater to the lesser, right? If the greater is the servant, then the lesser should be the servant. I've given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do this. So this morning we're exploring what it means to be servants, but also... I want to talk about why it is so crucial that we live as servants. And Paul's letter to the Philippians is perhaps one of the greatest appeals to servanthood that we find in all of the Bible. Now, you can read the story of Paul coming to this Macedonian city, Philippi, in the the book of Acts, chapter 16. I'd encourage you to do that later. And it was in this Roman colony of Philippi, which was in the region of Macedonia in northern Greece, current-day Greece, and his his companions planted the first church on European soil. And Paul dearly loved this Christian fellowship, these believers who lived there in Philippi. And he had had a warmth and a love for them that are evident in this little letter. So if you look at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 7 he says this to them it is right for me to feel this way about you all because i hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace he loves these people he is compassionate for them. He he holds them in his heart. It says, then in verse 8, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying, I love you just as much as Jesus does. I yearn for you. I miss you. He loves this little congregation. And now from prison, he's writing to this beleaguered congregation, this beleaguered little fellowship, who are, in their own right, experiencing social pressure. They're they're experiencing persecution from those around them, maybe even people who live in their own homes, and they're suffering for their faith. And because they're suffering, they're tempted to lose their hope. They're tempted to maybe even walk away from the faith. They're certainly tempted to lose their joy in the face of their trials, And Paul is concerned about all those things. But one thing that concerns Paul the most in this letter is that he's seeing that there are cracks beginning to appear in this little church. Cracks of division. Cracks of disunity, disagreement. And these are of utmost concern to Paul. So he's writing to this little church to encourage them to fight for unity. And he begins to do this by reminding them, just as we're doing here in January, reminding us of our identity, reminding them of their identity, uh, reminding us as believers of who we are. And so we're going to look at the basis for unity in our identity as kingdom citizens. So I'm going to begin in Philippians 1, verse 27. We are going to get down into chapter 2, but I want to back up just a little bit in Philippians 1, 27, where it says this. Paul writes, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I want to just take this verse, verse 27, the first part of it here, and just dive deeply here for a moment because there's actually one verb here that is translated in a certain way. But this this verb controls the whole idea of this section, verses 27 to 30. And it can be translated like it is here in the ESV, let your manner of life be. Okay, that's one word in the Greek, by the way. Let your manner of life be. In the the New Revised Standard Version, it says, live your life in a manner. If you have the NIV or the NASB, New American Standard, it says, conduct yourselves in a manner. The New King James Version says, let your conduct be, etc., so it's a verb that, that directs us to live, to act in a certain way. It's a command, but it says live this certain way. But there's, there's an important nuance to the verb, and that it's often missed in translation that is crucial for understanding what Paul is actually trying to get across here. This verb is closely related to other Greek words. One of them means city. Another of them means citizenship. So if you will, look over to Philippians 3, verse 20, just a, just a little bit, maybe one page to your right. Here's what chapter 3, verse 20 says, and it's, it's using one of the same, similar verbs, excuse me, similar nouns to this verb, a, a word that's closely related, where, where Paul is reminding them in verse 20 of who they are, saying this, but our citizenship is in heaven, So so the verb here in 127 is connected to that idea of citizenship. It's a command that means something like this. Act Act like citizens of heaven should act. Live like a citizen of heaven should live. In other words, what Paul is saying is that your behavior should flow from your identity So I don't know if any of you have the New Living Translation, but here's how it puts it, and I think it gets it right with this word. It says this in verse 27, Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. So Paul is saying, live who you are. You are, now be that way. So for the Philippians, this idea of citizenship was a very important cultural idea. The city of Philippi was different than most other cities in the empire, the Roman Empire, because it had a special status. It was a Roman colony. It It was almost like the city of Rome planted on foreign soil, and a large percentage of the people who lived there were actually Roman citizens. Many of them were retired Roman soldiers. So being a a Roman colony and having Roman citizenship were both considered badges of the highest honor. It marked them with privilege, with pride, with responsibility. And as representatives then of the glory of Rome, they were expected to act the part. They were expected to, to live lives that didn't bring disgrace upon the empire so Paul now takes that idea of being a citizen of Rome and uses it to remind the Christians that they have an even higher calling because they are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Right? And because we belong to a different kingdom and pledge allegiance to a different king, we should look different than the world. Our lives together should reflect the gospel. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel Of Christ. But what does that mean? Paul goes on to explain this need for unity in the rest of verse 27 and 28. So he says, Do this so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So as citizens of heaven living in a Roman colony, we might think of it as sim- very similar to where we are right now, citizens of heaven living in the United States, our allegiance to Jesus makes us look a little weird. It should make us look a little weird. We're exiles. We're not citizens of this world. And because of that, we'll be treated differently. When, when our lives look different, we'll be treated differently. And the Christians in Philippi were treated as second-class citizens. They were, they were treated with contempt by their neighbors. They were shamed by their family members who weren't believers. They were persecuted for their faith. They were opposed. And so they needed to stick together. So the need for unity is that we are always opposed. We're always opposed by the world. And we need to stand firm in one spirit. We need with one mind to strive and labor side by side so that we could be courageous and bold, as he says, not frightened in anything by their opponents. In short, in a hostile world, we need each other if we're going to follow Jesus together. For it has been granted, verse 29, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, which sounds great, I'll sign up for that, but also that you should suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And we can't live like citizens of heaven. We can't live like Paul lived. We can't live lives worthy of the gospel on our own. We do it in community. And sometimes God will graciously grant us suffering and trials to push us closer to each other. You see that? That's what opposition should do is point us closer to each other. For it has been granted, it has been graciously given to you for the sake of Christ that you would suffer for his sake. But of course, suffering is Instead of driving us closer, doesn't it sometimes divide us? Doesn't it make us a little punchy, maybe a little angry, maybe a little less patient with one another? And that seems to be what's taking place in Philippi. And Paul has already reminded them who they are. your are citizens of heaven. Now, he reminds them of what they've received in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and then he goes on to give them a new command. So given the choice here between the list of things here in verse 1 and the sufferings that Paul has just promised them in verse 30 of chapter 1, most of us would take these, right? Comfort in Christ... Encouragement encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, affection, sympathy. We'll choose those. But the truth is that these are the things that Jesus gives us in the midst of our suffering. Like so many blessings we have, right? Think of all the blessings you have. Indoor plumbing, automobiles, four-wheel drive, snow plows, central heating, Wi-Fi, Right? Like so many blessings we have, we tend to take them for granted when things are going well. We hardly even notice them, but when things get tough and snow and ice hit, we're sure glad for snow plows and central heating, right? Right? We're glad for those things when suffering comes, when pressure comes. And in the same way, we don't always appreciate these blessings of God's kingdom, like encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy. We don't appreciate them until we experience trials and we need those things. It's in our suffering that God gives us these blessings. And these are not just me and Jesus blessings, just just individual blessings, but blessings we receive from God through and with our brothers and sisters in Christ, through the church. We will rarely experience these blessings alone and we cannot have unity without them. They are the fuel, they are the blessing of Christian unity. As King David wrote in Psalm 133, he said this, Behold how good and pleasant it is When brothers dwell in unity. For there, he says, the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. God sends blessings when we live in unity. And I don't think that it's out of bounds to believe that maybe he withholds blessings when we're divided, when we're disconnected from each other, when we're disengaged with the body. Perhaps he withholds the blessings that we could otherwise have. And the result of unity should be joy. And as we're seeing, unity in the church was a big deal for the Apostle Paul. I think it's a big deal for Jesus, and Paul knew that. Paul understood, though, he understood the gospel deeply. He saw that the story of Jesus, the story of Jesus coming and living a perfect life, dying on a cross, being resurrected again, he saw that this story is essentially a story of reconciliation. God reconciling sinful sinners, sinful sinners, sinful human beings, men and women, to himself. And in the same time, in the same breath, in the same moment, reconciling us with one another. So when the gospel gets a hold of a group of people, unity should be the supernatural result. And when there's disunity within a fellowship of believers, both the truth and the witness of the gospel are threatened. But when the church is united, it's a beautiful miracle. It's something only God can do. It's a work of God. And the work that God does should always bring his people joy when we see God working. And so Paul commands the Philippians. He doesn't say to to them, do this, be united, or I'm going to come there when I get out of prison. I'm going to beat you upside the head. He doesn't threaten them. He doesn't say, it's your duty to live in unity. Do your duty. He could have said these things, but instead, he appeals to his own joy. Look at verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Fulfill my joy. Perfect my joy. I have a hunch that Paul has in the back of his head Psalm 133, which I just read a moment ago. How how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And when he appeals to to the Philippians here, he's appealing to their love for him, their affection for him. And he speaks of his own joy, which could only be considered complete when the Philippians were living in unity. And how good and pleasant it would truly be for us all to live in unity. And oh, that we would desire the same kind of joy, that we would long and labor to live together and work together in unity because we know that when we do, it will bring us joy. Think of all the places you look for joy. Are they things that are going to last? Are they things that are worthwhile? Are they things of the kingdom? Perhaps our lack of joy actually comes from a lack of unity. You want to be joyful? Seek to live in unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Seek to be one with your church family. What does unity actually look like? How do we achieve it? And I think that's where Paul is going to go now starting in Verse 2. So he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And the picture Paul lays out of unity, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, being of one mind, this is really a fourfold way of saying a simple truth. A church should be in agreement on the things that matter the most, which is not carpet color or worship music or budget as we'll see in a moment, verse 5, Paul is calling them to have the very mind of Christ. To be concerned with the things Jesus is concerned with. To make his kingdom, his gospel central. To be concerned about our unity and our witness as we live as citizens of the kingdom and the ways of the gospel. And so to do this, he gives a mechanism. He gives a, a way to do this. We have to give Jesus control of both our attitude and our actions. And the attitude that Paul calls for is simple. It's attitude of humility. Be humble. And the action Paul calls for is also really simple. Service. Humble service. That's it. That's how we live in unity. Simple. Not easy. An attitude of humility is is key. I believe humility is the gateway virtue. You can't get any other Christian virtues unless you're humble. It's a foundational to the entire Christian life. And spiritual unity, spiritual oneness among a body of believers, we must, for it, for it to happen, we must be humble. It is required. It can only be gained through humility. So verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And selfish ambition and conceit are simply the human desires that we all have to put ourselves first, highest. Consider ourselves as more important than everyone else. And by the way, I'm an expert at this, so this is the part I can really talk about with some expertise. Desiring our own advancement seeing all of life as a competition to see who can get ahead, who can be first, who can get what they want. And selfish ambition and conceit are both insidious because they can play out in big things, but they usually play out in the small things. And honestly, it's the small things that usually get us, isn't it? And in contrast to that, selfish ambition and conceit on one side, but in contrast to that, humility sees everyone else as more important than me, more significant than myself. It takes me off of the pedestal, it takes you off the pedestal, and it places other people there. And I don't just put them ahead of me so that eventually I can get ahead. It's, just not, a, it's not just a bait and switch, but it's actually putting them there and considering them as being better than I am. Now, surely as responsible human beings, we do have to take care of our own stuff, and I'll talk about that just in a minute. But this is placing other people above us with genuine concern, genuine love, and genuine care. But humility as an attitude isn't enough. It actually has to play out in real life, in real situations, in lives and actions of service. Verse 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay, so in a dog-eat-dog world where everyone is trying to get ahead, our own agendas often win out, right? We wake up in the morning thinking about, what am I gonna do today? What's on my to-do list? What are my plans? What do I need to accomplish? How do I make something of myself today? And like I said before, as, as responsible human beings, we do have to take care of all the things that have been entrusted with. We have to tend to our own interests. I have to get up in the morning. I have to make sure my family is fed, right? I have to do certain things to get through the day. But we can't only do that. Humble service requires that we take the interests of our brothers and sisters as our own. And if I'm to do that for all of you, to consider your interests and your concerns as my own, and we all do that for each other, how much time and attention do we really have to give to our own interests if everyone else is doing it? Living as citizens of heaven, living in unity, requires not that we fight for our rights and privileges, but that we actually give up our rights and privileges for the sake of one another, which is exactly what we see Jesus himself do, starting at verse 5. And there's debate over whether or not this is an ancient hymn or a song or a poem that Paul takes and inserts right here in the Philippians. Either way, it's one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant the Father. Amen. And we could just end right there, but I have a couple more things to say. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And I've already mentioned that Jesus has given us his own mind. And this isn't just an intellectual exercise, knowing all that Jesus knows. It's to have the same view of life, To have one mind is for all of us to think in the same way that Jesus does, to have the same priorities as Jesus does, the same loves, the same same concerns that he has. And as this passage makes clear, his is a mind that's given over to humble service. That's the mind that he would have us to have. It says, though he was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, Jesus was equal with God. Now, there are echoes here of Eden, of the story in Genesis chapter 3, where we have man and woman who are created in the image of God. They look like God. They are like God. And when given a temptation to grasp, to be like God, to be more like God, to have the things that God has, they went for it. They grasped. The fruit, they took what was forbidden, and it's been chaos ever since. But Jesus is the perfect image of God. He is in the form of God. And instead of grasping for what was rightfully His, He laid it down. He gave it up. And it says, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, what did Jesus empty himself up of? He did not empty himself of his divine nature, he remained fully God. Rather, in becoming one of us, in becoming human, he set aside his divine privilege for a time. In other words, he said, I will set aside this privilege so that those who don't deserve it might one day share in my privilege. I, the king, will become a slave, a servant, so that those who serve me can become kings and queens. I, the greatest being in the universe, shall become the least so that the least might become great. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the greatest act of humble service in the history of humanity was Christ's submission to death on a cross, a death that paid for the sins of all those who would put their faith in him. And as God's perfect servant, he perfectly obeyed even unto death. And in that death, he reconciled a people to his father and to one another. As Mark 10.45 says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus became nothing so that you could become something. And that something that you are to become, according to this passage, is a servant because in God's economy there is nothing greater than a servant the greatest among you shall be your servant Matthew 23 right out of Jesus' mouth to be called a servant in the kingdom of God is the greatest honor the greatest distinction of all Because if Christ has become our servant, if the greatest has become our slave, then we should also be servants. He has enabled us to do it. He's given us his spirit. He's called us to do it. And he's given us the very gift of servanthood. In his mind, it's only the greatest of people. It's only those who are most like God who are true servants. For I've given you an example, Jesus said in John 13, that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So if the king of heaven is a humble servant, then his subjects must be also. So brothers and sisters, we are servants. Let's outdo each other in our humble service. And we see the picture of the greatest servant ever here at the Lord's table as we come and we take communion together. That's just snow sliding off the roof. It's okay. It's not an earthquake. As we come to the table together, we remember his body and blood, which he willingly, in obedience, laid down so he, he could become our servant and grant us the greatest gift of it ever, the gift of salvation, the gift of reconciliation with God. And, You can have that today simply by believing, by placing your trust in Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior, as your Master, and following him as his disciple. And what a privilege, what a joy that would be to be able to sit and pray with you today. I'd love to chat with you about that, and some of our other leaders would as well. But I encourage you to come. If you're a follower of Jesus, this table is for you. It's a table for sinners to be reminded that we are forgiven, that we are made new, and that we are to follow in Jesus' own footsteps, the footsteps of a servant. Let's pray. Fathers, we come, we are grateful for this reminder that Jesus was the greatest servant. It should blow our minds that the king of the universe bowed down before 12 foul fishermen and tax collectors and zealots, and he washed their feet. Jesus, you even washed the feet of Judas. And today you would wash our feet. You would serve us, and we are humbled by that. Jesus, send us your spirit so that we might complete your joy by humbly giving our lives over to serve one another to be a church united around you and who you are and what you want for us. God, help us to love each other. We need you desperately. We pray this in your name.